0: Welcome to the SLB podcast, where we talk about ELT, SLA, and other things that enthrall and infuriate us. I'm Neil McMillan, president of the SLB Cooperative. And this is episode four. We'll be talking about precarity, especially precarity in the European context in English language teaching. And our guests today are Paul Walsh along with James Venner and Alice Copello, also from our cooperative here
1: at SLB. So
2: we're
0: really Delighted to have Paul Walsh with us. Paul, do you want to introduce yourself? I mean, I don't know how to describe you. You're a teacher, you're an activist, you're also a journalist.
2: Um, Yeah, I wouldn't describe myself as an activist, but um, I'd probably describe myself as a teacher, a writer, and a precarious worker.
0: Okay, you would describe yourself as precarious in terms of employment at the moment.
2: Yeah, I'm less precarious than I was, but I'm still not on a um, permanent contract, uh, unlike uh, other teachers uh, I know, so... Yeah, I would describe that as precarious. I only have a contract until the end of next year.
0: And you teach in Berlin, right? And you're teaching in a, in a university at the moment, is that right?
2: Yep, yeah, I teach in a language centre at uh, one of the main universities in Berlin, yeah. Okay, is that typical then for where you are,
0: for, for people not to be on permanent contracts?
2: Uh, it varies. So, I mean, I guess around uh, 30 to 40%, depending on the institution, of teachers teaching English are freelance I've worked at different Hochschulen in Berlin, and that seems to be the case. So yeah, there's a lot of freelance labour. And before I got job working at universities, I worked in language schools, academies for five or six years, and that was that was virtually all freelance. There's a lot of freelance uh, freelance labour uh, in the academies here.
0: Okay, and just to clarify, what are Hochschulen?
2: Oxygen are like uh, tertiary institutions, technical colleges, Mm -hmm. I suppose you'd call them, yeah. Okay. Do you want to give us a little bit
0: of uh, background, how you got into English language teaching? Because you've worked in quite a few different countries, I think.
2: Yeah, I've had quite an unconventional route. Um, Okay, let's go back to maybe 2005. So 2005, I graduated uh, from, from university. I had a fine art degree. And anyone who's graduated with a fine art degree will know how useful that is in the, in the job economy. Um, so I thought, well, what can I do? Um, there was two choices. It was, was really kind of, I was living in, in Canterbury at the time and either move back to London where I had lived before and try and make it in the art world. Um, and some people did that and they're still there, I think, <laughs> trying to make it in the art world. Mm. And I chose to leave England like I was kind of tired of, um, tired of England at that point And I went, did my CELTA in Krakow, in Poland. And then that was really the start. I start, I got a job in a small town in Poland. Uh, and then, yeah, that was my first job. And then I've, I was only going to do, do it for a year, like most people. And then, and then I, I never went back to England. That was, uh, that was you know, nearly 15 years ago now.
0: Mm-hmm. And since, since uh, working and living in Poland, where have you been? I've, uh,
2: Mainly, I mean, I've always been interested in Eastern Europe and Southern Europe, so I've, I've mainly been working, um, so I started off in Poland, then I went to countries of the former Yugoslavia, um, so I worked in Bosnia, which I really loved, and I worked in uh, Macedonia, North Macedonia as it's called now, and where else did I work? I oh, waited one year in Bulgaria, which is slightly different. Then one year back in Bosnia and after that I, I, I had no money, my, me and my wife we had no money so then we went to Saudi Arabia for a year and then we landed in Berlin um, and we've been here ever since. Okay we're going to get into the,
0: the definition of precarity in a little bit but of all these kind of working environments that you've had which, which were more or less precarious for you?
2: That's a good question because the most precarious after working in Bosnia Poland uh, Bulgaria the most precarious was Berlin I I came to we came to Berlin mainly because after living in Saudi Arabia which really is the closest you'll ever get nowadays to living in a a totalitarian regime yeah we we just wanted to go to the most liberal place we could Um, and I I did my masters here in East European Studies but working here is, is very precarious I mean I say it either rains or it's a drought. So you either have a lot of work. The academies will pile you up with work and you you really have no time to do anything else. So then you have a lot of money, but you have no time. Or maybe in the summertime or Christmas, this is a common complaint, you'll have no work. So you just really struggle. So it's very hard to plan any kind of existence when you have this kind of income stream that varies so much. And on top of that, in Germany, you have this Teachers are responsible for healthcare, pensions, and all the social insurance costs. We can, which can be about up to about half of your salary in some cases.
0: So, I mean that you're you're talking about working as a freelancer, right? Yep. If you're made to be responsible for these things.
2: Yeah. If you're freelancing in 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 Berlin, you'll have to pay maybe 300 uh, euros a month's healthcare costs. You're mm. meant to pay towards your pension, but I don't know. Hardly any freelance teachers I know pay into their pension because it's just you just can't afford it on, on your wage. Um, so a lot of teachers here are precarious, and you know if anything goes wrong, it's fine until something goes wrong. People get sick; uh, they have to go back to UK for a kind of emergency. That's when it all goes wrong, and, and I've seen that a few times.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's more similar to Spain than I than I previously thought in terms of freelancers being made to be responsible for all these things and, and as you say, it's like feast or famine in terms of work.
2: Yeah, exactly, yeah.
0: So one bad month can, can really put you in a difficult situation.
2: I mean, it was crazy because when I lived in in Sarajevo, the local teachers and the native speaker teachers, uh, we, we all got paid the same. It wasn't a very high rate, but we all got paid the same and it was enough to live on. And same in Poland, we had enough to live on, we had medical care. Mm-hmm. And and then I came to Berlin, and people really struggle. it's just kind of strange, you know.
0: But obviously, something about Berlin wanted. <laughs>
2: something about Berlin
0: made you want to stay, right? So, despite these difficult conditions, what what is it about Berlin that you that you like, that you enjoy?
2: Um, well, Berlin's a great. It's just a great city to live. There's lots going on culturally. Um, they have all the history of the of the 90s. The um, kind of a rebellious cultural scene here, which is still kind of alive, which you which you definitely don't have in in London. London's kind of been swallowed up by finance and gentrification, whereas here there's still a there's still kind of a, a radical culture, alternative culture.
0: And you started um, a kind of informal grassroots organisation for teachers in Berlin, am I right? I'm just trying to get the chronology right because we can talk about TOSIG, but I wonder what came first, um, uh, yeah. grassroots organisation or, or TOSIG?
2: Yeah, that was... Berlin Gas, Berlin Grassroots uh, Association, I think it was called, that I ran for about a year, 18 months. And it was kind of an object lesson in how not to do something, really. <laughs> um, because it was, I'd been working in academies for a, a few years, and I was just really sick and tired of the, of the conditions and, and the way they were run, and, and the pay I was getting. So I tried to organize some of the teachers there. And, um, I mean, it, it was kind of interesting for as long as it lasted, but we based ourselves on a model of kind of not doing anything to upset anyone, being nice, and uh, never challenging, never really challenging the way things are. I mean, mm. that's not the way to to challenge what's happening. You're going to have to pick a fight with with your boss or with something sooner or later. Um, otherwise, things just continue the same.
0: Mm. What's the situation with unions there in Germany, Paul, for, for teachers like yourself?
2: I mean, if you're in the if you're in the university sector, you have a permanent contract. A lot, there's a high density of unionisation. There's, uh, there's the GV, the main education union. There's also a service sector union, which is Verdi. Uh, so, but if you're outside that, it's kind of um, I know Verdi accept freelancers now but traditionally unions tend to cater for their core membership which is uh, you know long-term employed people with um with salaried well-paid salaried jobs Mm. and then they're not really concentrating on the new generation of freelance and precarious labor in in my in my opinion that might be changing Mm. but that's that's my experience
0: and well i mean beyond the sort of local level You were instrumental, I think you were really the the driving force behind the TOSIG group, which is the Teachers as Workers Special Interest group, and that's where we crossed paths, I think, initially, Paul. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, this is all documented in blog posts, etc., and we will link to those, but maybe we could just talk a little bit about how, how TOSIG came about.
2: Yeah, it wasn't really my idea. It was my idea for the TOSIG group. I suggested it in a blog post, I think, in 2014. But it was really Nicola Prentis uh, that took it forward to Ayatollah, and she she helped put the proposal together, and she uh, she knew someone who was connected to the SIGS, and she put it forward, um, and then it was rejected in June, I think around about June 2014, so five years ago. Um, and then I decided, well, why 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 is it that that IATFL has a monopoly on on, on what teachers want to talk about and what gets what gets what issues get aired. So I was like, why don't I just do it anyway and see what happens? And that's mm-hmm. and it was mainly because if I had said, Yeah, come on and do it maybe I wouldn't have been interested but it was it was just the ferocious kind of pushback and the kind of insults I got on social media and the kind of frenzied reaction to it. I was like, Well, this is crazy, I mean What's wrong with just talking about working conditions? This is a perfectly normal thing to do in a, in a normal society. So uh, I, I just I just carried it forward from then on, really.
0: And what were the, the kind of official reasons for not accepting this special interest group? Because ITF will have a num- numerous SIGs, don't they? I mean, they have inclusion SIG, they have business English, various other groups. What were their reasons for not taking on this?
2: I mean, the reasons we were given in an email were, th- were three reasons. Um, one was um, working conditions doesn't fall in under professional development of teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, but my answer to that was, well, why do you have a Global Issues SIG and a Literature SIG? What's that got to do with um, with, with teacher development in a narrow sense? The second one was um, we might raise expectations. <laughs> That' something could be done about working conditions and the third one was this might only serve a small niche of teachers mostly expat teachers working in academies hmm. um, which I mean I don't work in an academy anymore and several people in Torsig also don't work in academies so I, I don't really see I don't really see how those three things uh, are valid reasons for refusal
0: and uh, well this is kind of rumbled on a little bit, and I don't know how far we want to go into this. I mean, we can we can talk. We might, we might edit it out. I don't know yet, Paul. Yeah, I'm not, edit out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not very sure, but let's talk about it and see what happens. But this kind of got brought up again because I gave a talk at IOTEFL last year about working conditions and there was an article in EL Gazette about the issue, generally speaking, of IOTEFL. I think mainly in relation to IATEFL not supporting the Grafton teachers because there was a closure in a school in Dublin right Yep. and there was a kind of silence from IFFL in response to an appeal for help Uh, a fund was set up to help teachers who'd been left destitute really just before Christmas Mm -hmm. and that would be Christmas 2017 right
2: yeah actually I'm not sure I thought it was just no 20 yeah
0: Christmas 2018 that's right because I'm talking about the IFFL conference earlier this year Anyway, uh, then a kind of discussion, let's call it, developed on Twitter. Uh, The new IATFL president, Pari Kucha, Got involved with that. Then there was some discussion about about Tossig, and it, w- it was suggested that you and Nicola had been given a set of things to do in order to get Tossig accepted. But the kind of this, this is where the the communication seems to break down a little bit, and there seem to be differing versions of the story.
2: Yeah, that's that's completely news to me. I've never heard of. I never got an email on things to do, so I've I've never heard that before. I mean, one of the kind of things that I realised afterwards that. To be accepted as a SIG, then the SIG coordinators, in my understanding, have to agree that it makes a good fit. Now what a good fit means, it is completely open to de- open to debate and you know, I, I don't really think that's very democratic um, mm. for an organisation of that size to just allow that decision to be centralised within a very small group of people and, and mm. why, without allowing us to even put our case. If they had any reservations, then they could have asked us to kind of clarify things or follow things up, but they never did. They just kind of send this blanket refusal, and then we find out, oh, maybe apparently we're not a good fit, but what does that mean? So I don't see any kind of – first of all, I don't see any reason for the refusal. And second of all, I think it's undemocratic, and it doesn't speak of very good accountability to the whole process in general, you know.
0: Right. Well, I mean, I tried – uh, we tried, let's say, to to set up a meeting with Harry Kucha. Harry was, did make himself available for, for a meeting, but for various reasons it broke down, and I'm not sure this is the place to go into them. But um, let me just say that if we do keep this part in the podcast, then we're very open to having people from Ayatefo to come on this podcast and put their side of the story, because I think, you know, the more dialogue, the better. But the feeling I get about Ayatefo at the moment is they don't want to make a song and dance about working conditions, Although they seem to be open to having talks about it at the conference, which is a kind of contradictory position a little bit, I think. As you mentioned, that uh, one of the reasons that TOSIG wasn't accepted was because it wasn't considered to be related to teacher development, which yeah. is one of the things that IATEPL tries to push. And I don't, I personally don't think that they encourage talks that aren't about strictly about things like teacher development. In their call for conference papers, although I did get my talk accepted, let's let's be honest about it. But at the same time, I think they have talks about things like inclusion and diversity when it comes to things like um, LGBT plus issues. Uh, but then again, they don't make a song and dance about that either as an official body. So there's you know there's what goes on at conference, and there's what IETF will are happy to take a stand on. They don't seem to be things that match up particularly well.
2: I mean yeah I just think it's any issue that, that's going to make people uncomfortable and especially going to make some organizations kind of financially uncomfortable to talk about then I don't think those issues are going are gonna, to uh, they're not going to fly and they're not going to be talked about um, if you try and talk about them you'll just get dismissed so I mean I don't want to spend, I spent a lot of energy into this conversation about IOTEFL and um, I have I had a few emails with, with Harry about it and you know But I really don't want to, it was like four or five years of just ploughing energy into this issue. and I really don't see anything productive uh, happening now. So I I just choose to focus my energy on different things now. Yeah,
0: no, I think that's, that's fair enough. And it was a lot of energy on my part trying to set up this meeting. Harry did make himself available, but that was one person. And then we were trying to coordinate different people from with different time zones and it wasn't always happening but in the end i think probably there's some responsibility on both sides for this not happening but at the same time there is a breakdown of trust
2: i mean i mean the final thing i want to say is is just that if the, if there could be an open conversation between grassroots teachers and institutions then that would be a good thing but it has to happen both ways you know i'm open to having a conversation about working conditions and i'm also open to listening to other people but like Unless there's willingness, and then then, then nothing nothing's ever going to happen. Nothing's ever going to change. And it's very difficult to get any accountability out of ITEFL because you talk to the trustees and they'll say, oh, that's very difficult. We have to talk to the members. And then you talk to the members or the SIG coordinators and they'll blame someone else. Mm. And then it just goes round in a kind of loop and you're just forever chasing your tail. So I'm like, I can't be bothered anymore. I mean, they obviously don't want to talk about it. They just don't want to admit that they don't want to talk about it so well that's that's their problem
0: yeah i mean as, and as personally as far as i'm concerned at the moment i'm no longer a member of IATF. and harry made it clear he didn't want to speak to anybody that uh, that wasn't a member so that ship has sailed i suppose and the second thing would be that we we asked him at the beginning to do a thing like this to to record something with us that we could then make public and have a public discussion but he didn't want to do that either Anyway, I, let's let's not play a blame game, and I'm, I'm still not sure how much of this I want to broadcast. Let's talk, though, about what did happen with tossig because it became uh, a group that, independently of IOTEFL, put together... First of all, I think it was a Google group, and then it turned into a website. And uh, what would you th- consider the strengths and weaknesses of, of, of tossig as a group?
2: I mean... Torsig was kind of forged in the kind of um, controversy that surrounded, um, I think, the 2015 conference where people were talking about it. Why why can't we talk about this? Why can't we talk about working conditions? Why can't we have our own SIG? And there was kind of loud voices on both sides. So, I mean, I just wanted to have one platform (laughs) where teachers could maybe tell their own stories about working conditions and we could talk about it and... I mean the strengths uh, just that 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 kind of platform exists uh the weaknesses is is that I mean it needs to have a a more focused identity and I think the problem is lots of teachers know that working conditions is a problem or a problem but but what to do about it is is a totally separate issue and that's a very slow difficult battle
0: yeah and it may also be yeah maybe a question that's different answers in different places right I mean we, yeah exactly. Ireland is a, has been a very interesting place to look at in terms of what's been happening there with, with unionisation and, and different battles that have resulted even in changes in, in law in Ireland. And uh, that's something we'd like to look at in another episode. But what happened in Ireland or what's happening in Ireland might not be uh, the right solution for other places.
2: Yeah, totally. I mean, precarity is global, but it's kind of implemented or imposed on a national level, a national framework in Specific country with specific history and welfare regimes and markets and and so yeah it, it's it's very complicated. And I, you know, I can I can almost see why people don't want to talk about it because it is so complicated. But um, I mean that was the kind of challenge I set myself um, with the definition. It's like okay this is complicated. It has several several dimensions, but but there has to be a way to to kind of talk about it. Otherwise, how can you ever make any progress? You know.
0: Right, let's, let's talk about that, because uh, this is your article on precarity, which is one of the key concepts in ELT series, which are published by the ELT Journal, mm-hmm. and um, it's interesting because I was just looking at the, the list of articles in the key concepts, and it started off really as something which was about, I suppose, technical concepts in ELT, things like blended learning, task repetition, what's focus on form, what's washback. It does seem to have, in recent years, included things that maybe are more about welfare, maybe about learner welfare. We've had articles on resilience and a recent article on inclusion. But perhaps this, do you think that maybe this is the first article that's about teacher welfare or teacher conditions in the series, that is?
2: I mean, it might be, I don't know. I, mean, I have to take my hat off to uh, Richard Smith, who kind of commissioned and also uh, took me through the editing process. Uh, he was a great editor, I have to uh, say. Th- Big thanks to Richard. Um, I mean, it was him. It was his decision to really take a gamble. I think I suggested it on on Twitter, and then he wrote to me uh, a while later and said, "Oh, let, let's let's try it." And um, so it, it's up to Richard really. I mean, he he, he was the one that took the uh, took the gamble. Mm-hmm. And um, after several drafts, we kind of ploughed through all the problems and difficulties. My intention with the the definition, it was kind of a challenge that I said to myself, because I'm, I'm not an academic, I'm just kind of an ordinary teacher, but it, I wanted to provide a definition that was clear, that was useful to ordinary teachers, but that was also, wasn't oversimplifying the debate, and it was kind of, I think I write, what, it's adequate to the complexity or something um, of the situation. That was, the, that was what I really set out to do.
0: What, what would you say then, if you could sum up what's at the heart of your definition of precarity that in the article that's being published? Again, that's something we'll share uh, on our in our show notes.
2: I mean, the one thing that changed, that, that, sorry, the one thing that stayed the same throughout the whole drafting procedure was this uh, quote from Pierre Bourdieu. And I really wanted to keep this quote in there because I think precarity as an abstract concept you kind to think it's kind of, it's almost like natural. It's dropped from heaven. It has no history, but this quote shows that it does have a history, and I was very keen to 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 put that in there. And he writes that everything is. He he wrote about Algeria under French rule, where mm. the the French resettled uh, local people in in different kind of places, which destroyed their traditional way of life, and also led to them having to move to the cities because they couldn't they couldn't survive. So he writes that. Um, everything is stamped with precariousness, no regular timetable, no fixed place of work, the same discontinuity in time and space. The search for work is the one constant factor in an existence swept to and fro by the whim of accident. The whole of life is lived under the sign of the provisional. Mm. And that was the, kind of the key quote for me in the piece. Right. And uh, it's it's something though that we are. I
0: suppose the prevailing ideology is is, is we're we're meant to embrace this because uh, it's uh, it's opportunity. It's it's not to stay in the same place all the time. It's to you know to embrace change and to embrace. So I guess there's two ways of, of looking at that. I, I suppose ideologically speaking, we're we're supposed to look at it as a positive. But the the reality is what you're trying to get across in the article, right? That this is something which uh, uh, works against us, which which it puts us in a very insecure position, uh, which affects mental health and these these kind of issues, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's all about the the, the kind of the uh, the PR campaign f- is like you have you 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 can be an entrepreneur, you can release these entrepreneurial freedoms if you take away the the bad old social safety nets, and but actually, what you what really happens when you take away social safety nets is you release a wave of like anxiety and panic and 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 social problems, because people can't cope without safety nets. They need they need some kind of something uh, to protect them from from the market. And uh, I'm a big fan of Mark Fisher, and he says, you know, when you (laughs) when you take away everything that sustains people, you just turn people into quivering, anxious wrecks. You know, Mm. looking always looking for more work, very competitive, like rats in a maze. Mm. Um, And this is. This is kind of the precarious society we live in uh, at the moment.
0: Right, and I think rats in the maze is a good, it's a nice uh, image because uh, in a maze that we don't necessarily see each other. We're kind of uh, cut off from each other and, and individualising the problem is something which I think sustains precarity, right? Because then we all see it as our own personal problem to, to try to get you know, better work, more sustained work and we don't necessarily see that working collectively might be a solution to the problem.
2: Yeah, I mean it's it's a kind of a cult of individualism that that we're all kind of focusing on our own little path through this kind of um, through these kind of maze, and then you know there's always you know, the right turn or the left turn. Maybe I can maybe I can set up a blog. Maybe I can do this qualification. Maybe I should learn another language. And I think um, guy guy's standing in his one of his books. He talks about the precariatized mind. When you're, you're, you've got so many choices that you, you really cannot think straight anymore. Mm. And you, you just, you know, you're just anxious and panicky. And this gives way to kind of all sorts of other problems. Um, and I, I think I think that's definitely true, um, especially my younger students. They, they really kind of, they're bouncing from other things. They don't know what choices to make. They have no idea. They're just kind of bouncing from, from choice to choice and kind of very confused about what they're going to do in the future.
0: Right, right. Well, we're talking in this in this episode as well to some of our uh, co-op members in Barcelona and the and the study they did about working conditions for teachers here. Mm-hmm. And uh, in that part of the show, we'll we'll talk about you know what, what we think needs to be done in our at our local level. But when you look at your your situation, you describe yourself as being in a, a precarious position to an extent in your work in Berlin at the moment. What do you think? needs to be done in your local situation to combat precarity.
2: Um, I mean, in my situation, I, I'm pretty lucky now. I have a, a 50% contract at a, a good university and it's pretty well paid and for the time being I'm okay until that contract runs out. So, um, But when I was working at the academies, I mean, it was a different story as I've said before. So, okay, what do I think should be done? Hmm. I think it would help if teachers took an example from the, some of the German teachers um, who work here, like a lot of the German teachers who've teach the integrations course, integration courses, who um, also struggle from precarious wages. They have unionized through the two main unions, and they have had a at least a five-year campaign for higher wages themselves. So I think a lot of the expat community. Tend to kind of buy this myth of individualism, and they don't see the possibility of any collective solution to their, to their problems. So, okay. I think to focus more on, um, on unions, on organising collectively, would, would be a would be a good thing.
0: And, and as you say, taking the lead from uh, from from local teachers who teach German, the German language, right? Because I think the same thing's happening here that perhaps the Teachers of Spanish as a foreign language here are getting organized and, and getting unionized to a greater extent than some of the expat teachers are. And I think it would do everyone a lot of good if, if those two sides could come together.
2: Yeah, I mean I, I totally agree. I mean with Brexit and everything, I mean, I, I worry about the way <laughs> the English teaching is gonna go because mm. I, I just think for example, I'll give you one example. When I lived in Bo- when I lived in Poland and when I lived in Bulgaria, I taught class after class of um, Cambridge exams and there was teenagers, there was was dozens of teenagers that were bursting to, you know, uh, study in an English-speaking country, come to England, come to the UK to work, whatever, and now um, I know that in Bosnia (laughs) it's German that's replacing English because German Mm -hmm. is, is closer, it has a growing economy and it has jobs and and there's a queue out, There are queues halfway up the street for the German and the Aust- Austrian embassy. So I think um, ELT shouldn't get too complacent and think it's only the only language in the world. Right. Um, things can change very quickly. Absolutely. I mean, I just like to talk about the kind of ideology for a little bit because I think a lot of teachers, especially expat teachers, um, they have this entrepreneurial attitude. And it's kind of what I call vague entrepreneurialism. And if you go to conferences, you you kind of hear this as well. You know this oh we're human capital, uh, and we you know we've got to forge your way. You've got to create your own path. And you know it's um, takers and makers, and, and this kind of and it's kind of this vague entrepreneurialism, which is like there was an old ideology ideology critique which said you had to sign up to a complete capitalist ideology, but you actually don't. You just need to have three or four vague concepts that get repeated endlessly. And then that kind of is the main direction people go down. So, I mean, I get the sense that there's this vague entrepreneurial flair that, that, that everyone kind of is trying to cultivate without having knowledge of like, well, if you look at the graph, the share of labor, share of money, uh, earnings that's going to capital is a lot more than there's going to labor. So you're really fighting a losing game. If you just look at the, the science and the stats, but it, it, you know, it's people have this blinkered attitude that you know I'm going to be the one that that's, that's going to like buck the trend and, and be the entrepreneur and succeed when it, it's probably not going to be the case, you know.
0: Yeah, no, I, th- I see what you mean, and I think you see a lot of uh, recategorization going on. You know, people moving from being teachers to coaches, yeah, or yeah. or this these horrible expressions like teacherpreneur uh, coming in, and you see on LinkedIn everyone's got a product now and. Everyone's, I suppose, trying to repackage themselves in this kind of marketing terminology. But I don't necessarily know how much this benefits learners.
2: Well, yeah, true. And, and if, if by the time you've heard about, oh, there's a new trend, everyone's switching to coaching, then it's already probably too late for you to make a go of it because mm. it's always the first entrance in, in a new market who, who, who are going to succeed. So, mm. I mean, by the time you've made the switch, it, the market's going to be saturated and, you know, it's too late, you know.
0: Um, And another thing that happens as well is this, this, you know, it's kind of it's kind of difficult for teachers in some contexts. I think in your context as well as ours to make a living solely by by teaching. So then you have to diversify and do other things. Maybe you do a bit of translation. You do some proofreading. In your case, uh, you you've done writing and you've you've had pieces published in the Guardian yep. and in different web on different websites and magazines. Could, do you want to talk a little bit about that, Paul?
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, I got into writing basically because I was. I was did I did a masters in East European studies, and it was it was kind of useless to getting a job. What I really enjoyed was kind of I used to travel to to jobs all around Berlin on the S-Bahn on the train, and I would kind of I'd be reading, and I'd be like taking notes, and that I kind of I kind of enjoy really enjoyed that. So I think how can I continue this kind of reading and writing, and I started writing for free for various kind of left wing blogs and websites, and then eventually picked up some. Kind of paid work. Uh, I mean, it's just kind of a way of exploring an idea and and taking it taking it somewhere new. Um, and I have various preoccupations. Uh, neoliberalism. I'm really like writing about art and culture. I'm writing a a piece about precarity and film mm. because I, I I through writing the definition, I think it's one thing writing a dry definition, but it's another thing having a like a picture in a film they really kind of uh, gets people's imaginations going. And if anyone's interested in, in films um one of the film directors I would really recommend is the, the Dardenne brothers from, I think mm-hmm. they're from Belgium and two days, one night is yeah. a, f- is a brilliant film about precarity, anxiety and the panicked kind of working, uh, kind of working that people have to endure these days. Um, and Ken Loach has just got a th- his film has come out a few days ago about the gig economy. Sorry, we missed you. Mm-hmm. So I mean, if people don't want to read my definition, there are a lot of films out there they can watch which, which say virtually the same thing, which we're exploring these the same issues.
0: Yeah, Two Days, One Night is a fantastic film. Uh, I think was it maybe three or four years old now, but uh, really relevant to this this topic of precarity.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I mean, I recommend a lot of their films as well because they, they deal with the same kind of issues and it's the same kind of place where they where they set these films, and um, yeah, they just have a real feel for for what it's kind of like to live a life of precarity on the kind of day to day basis.
0: And so, where will we be able to read that article on precarity and film, Paul? Uh,
2: it hasn't found a place yet, so I'm writing it. I've I a few days ago. I um. There's another film I'd really recommend called Call Me Intern. And I interviewed the director on Thursday of that film. And it's a really funny story. He's a young guy, and he applied for jobs when he left university. And he eventually got an internship at the UN, the United Nations in Geneva. Mm-hmm. But to sign up for this post, he had to agree to uh, pay all his living costs, uh, pay his healthcare costs, and any any associate costs, or well, everything, basically. Um, to, to do while, while he was on that internship and so what happened was he ended up living in a tent next to, next to the lake, lake geneva and um kind of walking to the united nations every morning
0: wow yeah
2: and he made he made a film about it and the film is called me intern and it's um it's a really good film i i, I really recommend it and i'm going to include it in my my piece as well
0: right i mean that's that's something really interesting i think there's just been a story uh, in the the uk media about uh, uh, is it Samantha Cameron's uh, fashion label That's that it, s- yeah. sells trousers for extortion <laughs> amounts of money has been found to be have been illegally employing interns. I, I don't know what the story was exactly, but something had been exposed about that. And some of these very prestigious industries, well, you mentioned the UN, obviously it's a very kind of high level organisation. And uh, in our experience here, working with in, people in the film industry, just to tie all this together, things like high levels of precarity in um, in CGI and 3D animation. I don't know if you know that documentary about the CGI industry, Paul? Or...
2: Oh, no, I don't know.
0: Basically, you know, companies that went bust to produce the 3D animation for films like um, uh, Life of Pi. Ah, oh, okay. And uh, because there's so many people competing, people prepared to do things for nothing or for, for for very little, just to get their name out there, to get their name associated with a, with a big production and Hollywood producers just being quite content to drive companies out of business uh, to get the cheapest possible price for their nice, slick graphics. So I don't know if that's an angle you might look at in precarity. Yeah, what was that called? Film.
2: That film? I haven't seen that.
0: I'll. I can't remember. I'll, there's a documentary. I'll send you it, and we'll, okay. we'll put it in our show notes as well as a link for people to follow.
2: Great. The thing I learned was that precarity is hitting everyone. So you have the the interns. Um, Basically, internships have destroyed entry-level jobs in mm. like Wall Street banks, in even in the international organisations like UN. Uh, the, there's no entry ent- entry-level job anymore. Paid, you have to do a, a year or two internship to get that job. And at the other end, um, I wrote about an Australian teacher, an English teacher and filmmaker called Frances Calvert, mm. and yeah. she she faced a, a retirement without. Any savings without healthcare struggling to pay her bills and she had she didn't have enough work as an English teacher um, and a film teacher to cover her costs and last year she killed herself and so this is happening and I, I talked to her her sister I interviewed her best friend you know and they're, they're devastated and this is happening at, at young people it's happening at the other end when people who are retiring and it's happening happening people who are my age middle age so i think really it's really the time to do something about it you know
0: people Absolutely. Should be talking
2: about it and, and doing something about it not just not just um you know firing off on twitter which i'm guilty of more than anyone <laughs> but there really needs to be some institutions and people joining institutions to tackle this issue i think
0: Sure, and and I think uh, you're getting this article published by ELTJ, which I think is one of the most known journals in English language teaching. It's not a stupid academic journal, but it's a serious journal, and I think it bridges that gap between practitioners and, and academics. So I think it's a fantastic place to get published. So congratulations, Paul, on that article. We hope it makes a difference.
2: Cool, cool. No, thanks. I mean, it, I think that's what needs to happen. Like, more people, more English teachers need to stop being afraid of entering institutions and publishing papers and taking up leadership positions in institutions and, and pushing for change. Uh, I mean, if anyone ever wants any help from me, like I thought of doing this precarious worker reading list and film mm-hmm. list. So mm-hmm. if any groups of teachers out there want a list of all the readings that went into my uh, to my article or a list of films, just so they can... Talk about it, or maybe have a reading group or a film group. Then, then they can they can just get in touch with me. That's fine.
0: Great, and we'd also encourage people to to look at the Tostig website, right? And and yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. you can uh, subscribe to that, right, to get updates, or you can even write to Paul uh, or someone else involved in the group to to contribute.
2: Yeah, they can go to teachers at asworkers org if they have any any like polemics or just, or stories about their workplace or their working conditions. Yeah, then they can get in touch and we'll put it up there
0: fantastic thank you very much Paul absolute pleasure to speak to you again and um, well we'll hopefully get you back on the podcast at some point but we'll certainly keep in touch cool cheers man <laughs> to have on the show today two members of the SLB Cooperative, James Venner and Alice Copello, or Alice as we usually call her.
1: Guys, could you just introduce yourselves briefly, James? Yeah, sure. Um, so I came to Barcelona after teaching in, in Northern Italy, uh, hence my great pronunciation of Coppello. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I came here to do a master's. So I did a, a master's at University of Barcelona. Um, and that is four and a half years ago. Um, so when I finished the master's, I yeah, joined SLB and I turned, turned freelance. Um, and I've just stopped being freelance from September, um, where I've just uh, I've joined um, a higher education uh, institution and teaching full-time EAP.
0: Great. And Alice?
3: Yeah I arrived in Barcelona uh, one year ago now in November uh, 2018, Um, before that I was in Cambridge where I was teaching and doing a bit of work for um, universities and I was a director of studies and things like that Um, and then in Barcelona I've been freelancing for a year and I do a bit of materials writing as well for some publishers, Um, yeah (laughs) I don't know what else to say.
0: (laughs) No, I think it's just, it's just good to know that, you know, at SLB, we don't crucify materials writers. We actually welcome them <laughs> with yes. open arms. And you, we should mention, of course, that both of you have recently been elected to our uh, Executive Council of the Cooperative. And James, you're the secretary, right? And Alice, That's right. That's right. you're the vocal, but we Indeed. still need to define exactly what that means. <laughs> so it's an open position, but... In our cooperative, it's a flat structure, but there is a kind of body that tries to drive forward the co-op according to the objectives set by everybody, and it's really good to have new faces in there. So the reason that we've got you on today is to talk about this topic of precarity. I'd like to start with James, because recently with another co-op member, Melanie Brennan, you conducted and just published... The results of a survey on working conditions in English language teaching in Barcelona. Yeah that's right. Yeah, Could you give us some background about uh, why we wanted to conduct this survey and how you went about it?
1: Yeah, um, this kind of came from maybe for some for different reasons really. Um, a few years ago another SOB member, George, the past secretary, he, I know with uh, some other members, uh, ran a study um, quite similar And it was quite an open survey asking lots of different questions of which working conditions was one. And they had some quite interesting results. I think it's just, it's useful to have this kind of information. Uh, We're quite a big group of teachers here and we know quite a a lot of teachers uh, even beyond the cooperative. Um, And we've got a lot of kind of anecdotal accounts of what goes on in the industry. But I think we wanted to kind of go beyond that and really have a a slightly more in-depth understanding of of what's going on and what's it like for most English language teachers here. So a couple of things that we changed. So the previous one, I think, asked, uh, allowed anyone to answer uh, the survey. So not just in Barcelona, whereas we wanted to kind of concentrate on Barcelona because it's kind of quite hard to compare uh, across countries, although there are a lot of similar issues um, in different contexts. We managed to narrow it down to about 26 questions, and this covered everything from kind of just demographic kind of questions about ages and whether people were native speakers or not native speakers of English. Um, We looked at what kind of qualifications they had, um, whether they're engaged in CPD. And also, I think probably what we were most interested in was looking at their employment status and working conditions, including things like pay. And we wanted to kind of compare how our freelancers doing compared to people uh, employed in the private sector, compared to people employed by public institutions. And in the end, we had 190 respondents, which is, it's not loads, but it's, um, I think it's, certainly we can't make too many generalizations, but it's kind of indicative of what most, uh, I'd say most uh, teachers are experiencing.
0: Great. And uh, I think it's fair to say that although, you know, George Chilton did a great job on that first survey, this one's been a little bit more rigorous. You you piloted questions with co-op members, didn't you, and refined it based on that. And I think you've got a bit of a bigger sample than that first survey.
1: Yeah, that's right. So I think, yeah, we we did this, we wanted to kind of do it properly. I think with um, the way we recruited uh, respondents was, well, through word of mouth, through the cooperative, obviously cooperative members as well responded but also using social media, so Facebook and Twitter. And we kind of felt there's only so many times you can ask people to fill out surveys. So um, we spent quite a lot of time designing it, making sure it was exactly how we wanted before we put it out there. Um, And then we really, really kind of pushed it. And yeah, we're really happy to have uh, around 190 people involved.
0: I think comparing it to the first survey that we ran, it's perhaps the results perhaps aren't really that surprising. As you said though, I mean it's it's good to have data to back up criticisms of the of the ELT industry that we make. And, and it's also a little bit depressing to say that things haven't advanced very much since we did run that first survey. So the results perhaps aren't that surprising, but what what were the most striking results for you?
1: Yeah, I think um like you say, um there weren't great surprises here. I think it was interesting for me to see we actually created a bit of a visual and we managed to split the respondents based on their employment status to whether they were working privately uh, for a private school or or, uh, academy we call it here whether it's a public school, whether they were freelancers or working cash in hand. Um, So it was completely anonymous. So people would be willing to give up that kind of information. Um, And I was surprised just how kind of fragmented the industry is. So it's amazing the overlap between those different categories. It actually made our work really difficult when it came to analyzing it because so many freelancers also had some kind of private contract or some kind of public contract. So many private school um, contracted teachers we're also working cash in hand. And in fact, I mean, across the board, it seems that everybody is supplementing their income with cash in hand work. Um, So I I suppose that's not a surprise. I think we all know that we've been in those situations where we've uh, relied on different types of contracts or different types of employment. But it it was interesting to see that that was pretty much the norm uh, across the board.
0: Yep. And one of the more striking findings, uh, uh, you and Melanie presented some of the Findings didn't you at the Eltria conference earlier this year in Barcelona? Yeah, that's right. right. I think one of the most striking things was the comparison of earnings with living wage.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, Well, I'd mentioned two things. So we were looking at uh, rates of pay, of course, but but also looking at kind of types of contract. Um, So just if I mention that first, um, with the private school um, contracted teachers. There's only around a quarter that are actually on an indefinite contract, so a continuous contract. So that means that a vast majority are on like fixed term or um, temporary contracts, and more often than not being taken on from September until until June. Now, anyone within the industry is probably quite familiar with this, and but it was just quite impressive to see that. Yeah, only 25% of people working in the in the in the private sector of uh, our respondents. I've got to repeat this is um, we can't generalise too much, but only a quarter uh, had an indefinite um, contract. And then in terms of um, rates of pay, we it's very difficult with freelancers because the amount of hours they worked varied a lot. Um, so we looked at the contracted teachers and. Again, huge amounts, um, the majority, were not on the living wage. Now, the living wage was calculated by uh, the city council here. Um, so for a single adult living in Barcelona, so living in the metropolitan area, they stipulate about 1,200 euros uh, a month as a living wage. And of those people on a contract, uh, a large amount were, were far below that, earning around around a thousand euros um, obviously this is not uh, in the discussion we mentioned this is not just a problem within our sector um, this is this is quite common across Spain the uh, minimum wage is low and it and it quite frequently doesn't reach the living wage for uh, for an area of Spain
0: is, is that before tax or, or after tax when we talk about that that amount
1: of money that if I'd have to go back and check I'm pretty sure that is after um, yeah right. that is
0: that is net. So that's net, yeah.
1: yeah.
0: Uh, or limpio, as you say here. That's um, right. And it's probably worth commenting for people listening who don't know the situation in Barcelona. It's not a cheap city to live in by Spanish yeah. standards. Rents have rocketed in recent years, and it's certainly not the kind of place that our colleague Jeff Jordan arrived in 20-odd years ago or 30 years ago. Uh, these things are constantly shifting, but we know from bitter experience how experience how much rents have gone up and that makes life even more difficult if you're on that kind of wage.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. One
0: thing to comment on as well, James, I noticed that most of the participants you had in the age range of 30s to 40s. And do you think maybe that you didn't get many respondents in that kind of young backpacker teacher category that's a little bit derogatory I I admit that but, but we often complain about those teachers you know coming in doing some initial training it could be a a, a celta or a you know another kind of month-long tefl and then disappearing.
1: Yeah, I think just a word on that. I think um, it's very difficult with surveys, especially surveys of, of this nature, where it's quite clear that we are asking people to kind of engage and share stories about working conditions. I feel there's a couple of things to mention. First of all, um, as I said, we, we shared this on, on Twitter and Facebook, and I'd say that is kind of the demographic, right? So from 30s through to 50s are probably the Uh, the peak kind of demographic of users. Um, And also there's um, one group, a Facebook group here in Barcelona, um, which is quite active. And I suppose the people that are engaged in the ELT community, whether that's in person, turning up to events or online, are people that are um, in some way established in in the community. Um, So people that maybe have just finished uh, CELTA, um, they wouldn't necessarily have contact with with these kinds of um, with the community in in the same way and also the potentially less inclined to yeah to comment on the conditions because they don't know necessarily what to compare it to and then also if they uh, another part the fact that this is quite self-selecting I think if even though it's anonymous uh, if you are working predominantly cash in hand it's not something you necessarily want to admit to um, so I think, although this is kind of indicative, the, the results, one, one thing we mentioned in the discussion as well, I think in reality there are many more people working cash in hand, and I'm sure, yeah, like you say, the age group, maybe, yeah, 20s, 20 to 30s, uh, that might be the age group that it would represent.
0: Right, and just in case uh, the tax is listening, none of us work for cash in hand. We declare everything. <laughs> um, that goes without saying, right? But, James, you just mentioned the... Uh, how you recruited people, and, and a, a lot came through the main Facebook groups. Let's can we bring Alice in at this point because Alice, as well as being as well as being um, freelance teacher, materials writer, being part of the co-op, you also moderate probably the biggest Facebook group uh, for teachers in Barcelona. Can you tell us something about that? Yes, so
3: it's BTTA Barcelona Teflon Teachers uh, Association. Uh, I am one of the admins, and I think we've just got our thirteen thousandth um, member uh, a couple of weeks ago. So yes, it's huge. It is a closed group, so I mean, we actively have to allow people to come into the group, which means that not everybody can enter. So we we try and make sure that the people that we let in. Uh, our teachers and then of course you know some people uh for example um joined the group a few years ago and then now oh, they've moved away so they're not in barcelona anymore some people are thinking of moving to barcelona and then they end up not doing it so of course this is not thirteen thousand teachers in barcelona but it's definitely very active it has i don't know something like 10 or 20 posts a day i would say something like that
0: and yeah i mean i mean thirty 000 though, is a phenomenal number um, mm-hmm. But it's not just teachers are, that are members, right? Because you've got schools and academies, as we described them earlier on, who who also use the site to offer jobs and things like that, right?
3: Absolutely. And so, one bit of good work that that group is doing is um, we remove all the job ads that require, like, are trying to recruit native speakers only. All of those get instantly removed. And also, the job ads that don't specify a pay rate. Uh, which you know a lot of academies and a lot of recruiters just say you know according to convenio or legal pay or Mm. competitive salary and it doesn't mean anything really so so those get removed and and sometimes reposted with the actual rate
0: okay okay so that's uh, (laughs) quite an improvement i have to say that i don't really use facebook anymore i used to be quite a regular visitor to that page but i'm not anymore and these were some of the things that were big sources of conflict in the past, right, that there were a lot of adverts specifying native speakers only, and uh, as you say, employers not being very transparent. But I just wonder, the kind of issues that come up in James and Melanie's survey, are these similar things to the things people complain about on the BTTA page? So just to, just to go into that, and James, maybe you want to come in here as well, but some of the things people complained about, they talked about, uh, obviously, low Rates of pay, this idea of zero hours contracts, although that's not something here that's that's meant to happen, but certainly people mm-hmm. feeling like that they are fired and then rehired, little job security, and including complaints about racism, uh, and that's that's mm-hmm. obviously from from non-native speakers. Are, are these the kind of things that are reflected on the BT, sorry, the BTTA page?
3: There are two things I think to keep in mind here. The first one is that. People complain about low wages quite often, which I think is very healthy. Um, so all the ads have to give a pay rate. And when this is low or is felt that it's it's very low, it, there is uh, a sort of popcorn moment, as we call it, um, where there's a flurry of comments basically saying that it's too low, it's not a living wage. And then everybody will have that conversation on that post, which I think is healthy if not particularly pleasant for the poster Mm. um but you know so that's that's one thing the other thing is you know just to mention something that james said earlier he said that um perhaps the the younger generations of teachers don't really talk about working conditions because they don't know what to compare them to and i thought that that was a, a great comment james because i feel like a lot of the younger generations of teachers, uh, or just the teachers that have just arrived in Spain, like myself, we don't really know. There isn't that much awareness, I feel, um, in terms of what's legal, in terms of what's right, in terms of all of, uh, you know, all of these conditions. We don't really know what's up. Um, And I think that that is exacerbated by the fact that a lot of the sort of legal documentation is only in Catalan, which is Of course, absolutely, fair enough, because we're in Catalonia. But, you know, when the usual, you know, 21, 22 year old teacher finishes university, does a CELTA and moves abroad, they don't instantly speak the language. And so there's not a lot of information that's accessible
1: out there, I felt.
0: James, does that resonate with you?
1: Yeah, I'd probably add to that as well. That I mean, realistically, I think if you're new to the industry and you've just um, finished the CELTA, your main concern... Obviously you want to try and earn a living, but your main concern is, is having experience. It's kind of quite hard to break into the industry, I suppose, um, and well, employers take advantage of that, this kind of churning out of new CELTA graduates. But I think, yeah, the first concern is to find work and get experience, and they're not really in a position necessarily to be demanding certain certain rates of pay. I mean, if they're coming in with, with next to no experience, I suppose that's the way. Um, I think it's very different, obviously, when you are established in the in the industry and you have experience and you are well qualified. The the challenge is then to differentiate yourself from from the pack, shall we say? Mm. Um, so that will often mean doing further education, so further qualifications. Um, and I think I don't know if you agree, but I think well, for a lot of our members, the the option is then to then go freelance, and so here it's called autónomo, uh, and that means obviously you can set your own set your own rates of pay. Um, But then I think that, you know, that's a precarious for, for a whole bunch of other reasons, right? Um, Still not paid during the summer, um, unless you're working. And then you might be working in lots of different locations. That's another thing that we saw from the survey that freelancers uh, Mm -hmm. maybe have upwards of seven or eight employers, uh, different employers or clients, should we say? Um, So that's obviously gives you a bit more freedom, but you're still faced with a certain degree of precariousness
0: right and uh i mean that touches on why we formed the co-op is, is to have a kind of uh how can we say a support system for freelancers but it's not to say that we think freelancing is the ideal solution
1: yeah it just yeah. just yeah.
0: happens to be as you say what what many of us end up doing in a bit to to improve our conditions but it, as you say it does come with its own set of problems
1: yeah, and of course it can work, you know. Um, yeah, up to now I've been very happy and I've made my decision not to do that, but I think that compared to what most employers are offering, it's by far a better situation.
0: Right, and it's worth pointing out that, you know, you've been, uh, I mean, you're very talented, James, and, and you've you've taken a, an opportunity, but there aren't that many of these opportunities around to to work full-time for a reliable employer for a half-decent half salary. Yeah. Um, so that kind of... Feeds into, you know, the the drive to become freelance as well. I just wanted to comment then. These are the obviously the things people complain about, but the survey also touched on what people want and what kind of changes they they see. Apart from the obvious one, higher salaries. What what kind of things were people saying, James, in the survey?
1: Yeah, so we did invite people. You know, to get a few of these things off their chest and and. Um, and to kind of share some negative experiences, but we wanted it to be quite positive as well and uh, maybe to be um, almost a base for for action in the future so it was um, we we asked them to talk about what they'd like to see that to change in the industry so this part obviously the much more open question so this was a kind of a qualitative part of the survey so we tried then to kind of categorize answers um, and there's some really very, very very well expressed answers about changes that, that people wanted to see. And we categorized them in kind of four four groups. So the first one was basically just direct treatment of teachers. So fairness and transparency. Um, so the idea, we did talk about um, uh, non-native English speaking teachers and how they, uh, the need for, the, for them to be <laughs> included, you know, and not excluded from jobs, transparent hiring practices, which is connected to this, fair salaries and pay scales that we mentioned before. And, and the fact that you know, pay scales should be linked to qualifications and experience. Um, and we kind of don't always see that uh, within the industry. Um, the next, in terms of looking at kind of solutions to some of the problems, there were several mentions of uh, unionization, and kind of collective bargaining, which is really the only way uh, for I think most of us see as uh, being able to demand a higher wage, because when there's, it's about kind of supply and demand, so if there is a huge supply of teachers it's very difficult for those individual teachers to, to demand higher, uh, better, better situations and better conditions. And as a part of that was also regulation that, you know, maybe the government, uh, the local administration can have a role in, in regulating employers and making sure some of these kind of cowboy, um, methods of, of employing people are, are eradicated. The next, so the third point was about just greater collaboration, uh, between teachers I think um, there's an interesting post I think miles may have posted about um, isolationism uh, within the industry where teachers actually although we, we often come together and talk about problems um, I think many teachers feel quite isolated um, it's a bit different from other careers where you're you're working directly uh, within a team um, so that was one another another point about collaboration Um uh, on on different levels and then the final point which i think is very important is about higher professional standards um so i think half the problem like i said is trying to show that you are a professional and that you haven't just uh, turned up to kind of gain a bit of experience and to travel and and mm-hmm. have a good time so i think maybe uh, a more structured commitment to continue prof- professional development and this obviously needs there needs to be support from the employer as well for this mm-hmm. uh, yeah. And this links all back into um, making sure that pay scales are related to, to experience.
0: Right. And I I noticed that some people were calling for a kind of higher level entry standard. And I suppose people were referring to, you know, the, the, the four week initial course. Uh, this mm-hmm. is all, often cited as a reason why things are or wages are so low in the industry, because if it's so easy to get in you know then why why should somebody with a four week training be rewarded with anything more than a very basic minimum kind of uh, salary
1: yeah yeah i think it's a very good point i mean there's not many professions where you could expect to just start working after four weeks of training yeah even the more kind of manual jobs or whatever it might be i mean the, i can't think of anything that you'd you'd call yourself a teacher after after four weeks or call yourself whatever the profession might be no uh, that needs to be, yeah, I think that needs to be uh, resolved, really.
0: And just on that, that article you mentioned about be, uh, about isolation, that's Miles Klein, another member of our co-op, and uh, he just published an article about that on the Eds platform, and we'll, we'll put a link to that in the show notes, as we will, of course, put a link to uh, James and Melanie's survey. Uh, you can read the full report, or you can read also a blog post which summarises some of the main points. Alice, can I bring you back in again? Because uh, these kind of aspirations people have that James mentioned, these are also reflected on the BTTA page, right? And, and also including the the need for, for more unionization and, and for people to join the local unions. Is that something you see people talking about or asking about on BTTA?
3: Absolutely. I think th- th- there's a couple of anecdotes that will help better understand where I'm coming from when I'm you know talking about unionization for language teachers in Barcelona. and the first one is how I came across the cooperative for the first time, how I just found out about its existence. I was still in Cambridge um, and I was looking for reputable sources of information in English that I could access because I couldn't speak much Spanish or any Catalan. And I came across a, a blog by the SLB that was, I can't remember exactly which one it, it was, but it was explaining about workers' rights and what the convenio is. And, and so I always felt that the SLB. You know, had that sort of role of spreading information, combating misinformation as far as um, workers' rights was concerned. And at the same time, then, when I moved to Barcelona and became an admin of, of BTTA, I, I did see people asking every now and again, guys, do we have a union? Does it exist? Mm. And and people would often reply, you know, comment on the post saying, no, there isn't the best, you know, the best thing you get is CSLB. And as amazing as we are, we are not the union. Right. Um, And so then I found out that there is a union. And I started having chats with them uh, and meetings with the coordinator. And funnily enough, it was the the time where um, they were trying to get the union members to sign the new convenio that they had just negotiated, the convenio being the um, sort of official document that states the minimum wage and the minimum conditions um, that employers, uh, a consortium of employers um, and the union signed together uh, to, to sort of decide what's legal and what's not. And the last time this had been updated, it was in two thousand and seven, I believe, or two thousand and eight, mm-hmm. and it mm-hmm. had remained the same for for that long.
0: Yeah, maybe um, we should just so, um, maybe sorry to interrupt, but maybe we should just clarify yeah. a little bit that uh, yeah, you you described very well what a convenio is in Spain or in. Yeah, no, you can do it better, please. No, 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 but you're right. It's I mean, obviously, workers' rights are regulated at a national level, um, and also by European legislation. But every sector, uh, work sector has its own convenio or conveni in Catalan which is uh, negotiated between the, the main unions and the patronal which represents the business interests or business owners. And um, they are supposed to be kind of renegotiated every, every few years and as you say they, they, they stipulate what, what the minimum paying conditions are for, for each industry we should clarify that there's more than one union active here. So we have Comisiones Obreras. I think that's the one you mentioned. They've negotiated a convenio. This is for Catalonia because yeah. there are different convenios in Spain. They had negotiated that back in 2008. But uh, after that, the UGT, is another union here, had done a new convenio that the uh, Comisiones were not happy with. So we had this terrible situation. You're, it's confusing enough as it is. But we had two different convenios in operation in, in Catalonia, one more recent than the other, but the two main unions here couldn't agree on uh, what they were. But what you're talking about now is a step forward in that Comisiones have now negotiated a, a new convenio to come into effect uh, in January, right, yes. I think, for 2020.
3: Yes, yes, we're waiting for final confirmation from the authorities, but yes, it's happening.
0: Right. and. Well, this, this brings us to, we can't go into too much detail at the moment because it's a kind of fledgling plan, but Alice, you've been agitating, shall we say, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> let me choose my words a bit better. You, you, I think uh, you're right, the SLB have tried to, in the past, mediate, if you like, between the, the unions here and, and teachers on the ground who perhaps don't have great Spanish or Catalan and try to communicate what workers' rights are, what the convenio is all about. And you're, you're pushing for us to keep doing that and to try to push it on to the next level. Can we, you maybe talk a little bit about yeah, your ideas for further collaboration with unions?
3: Yes, absolutely. So um, what James was talking about earlier about um, how teachers in the survey want the government to be regulating employers better. Um, what I personally believe is that we can help with that, not the SOB, but like all teachers can help with that by reporting. Uh, employers that are not behaving in a proper manner um, or legally, but we need to know that first. The first thing that we need to do is know our rights um, and I can tell you because i 've just moved that I find uh, you know the legislation here extremely complex, extremely complicated and, and baffling sometimes Uh, and it requires someone to literally sit down and and look at it for hours and have it explained by five different people to really understand what the conditions are Um, and so I feel like uh, this is something that we can do that this is something that we can help with so with the help of the union who provides the knowledge and Uh, double-checks our facts to make sure that the information we're spreading is correct and accurate at the time that we publish it. Um, I feel like we can take all that information and translate it not just into English but translate it in a a way that's user-friendly, that's accessible. Um, I am Italian myself so I I know what I'm talking about when I say that legalese and bureaucracy sort of language is not very accessible, I don't understand Mm. my own language. so I feel like we can have this role whereby we take this complex information, we have it double-checked uh, for, for accuracy, and then we post it in, in the form of blogs or videos uh, on the SLB blog um, in a way that is accessible to everybody and everybody can sort of get answers uh, when they need them, so the first step in this process um, on BTTA this week um, there's been an announcement asking for people to contribute asking for teachers to to comment with the questions that they have and they never managed to find find answers for mm. um, or the questions that they had when they just started out and they wish that you know there had been a better source to find the the answers. Um, and we've had loads and loads of responses, loads of really good questions um, about all the different types of contracts and finiquitos and quico discontinua and what's legal and what's not. Uh, all, all of these questions are going to be answered little by little mm-hmm. with the help of the union, Comisiones Obrera, and mm-hmm. with a bit of, bit of goodwill on our part.
0: <laughs> right. That's something I think we're all quite excited about is to be involved and to yes. continue that you know, process we've been in to try to keep people informed, and we hope that uh, the more informed people are, the more aware they are that they do have rights. That it's not just a free-for-all market where employers can do what they want. Hopefully, we mm-hmm. can bring some employ- employers to to account uh, and help the union in that in that respect. And that hopefully yeah. will have a knock-on effect on improving paying conditions in the sector. That's that's the that's the yes, objective.
3: Definitely. But yes, that's something I wanted to add when um, when James was saying about um, becoming freelancer as a, an alternative to uh, working for a private academy who might you know be behaving in a way that it shouldn't. Um, whilst I agree, and I am a freelancer myself, so you know I agree. I feel like it, the the private academy that gives out the the that's you know, not exactly legal or it's not exactly fair. That's where we start, in my opinion, because if that changes, then that does have a, a knock-on effect, you know, upwards, um, so that everybody's wages get better, everybody's conditions get better. Do you, do you see what I mean?
0: Absolutely. And, well, well, we'll obviously hopefully get back with you, Alice, in some future episode of the, of the podcast once this project is a bit further advanced but it's really yeah. great great to hear um and we obviously really appreciate the effort that you're putting in getting in touch with Comisiones and you know to get this moving forward uh, because it's it's
3: my pleasure it's
0: sorely Sorry. needed um i'd just like to add we have you know there's another possibility i've been speaking to somebody who's involved with the uh, which is the anarchist or anarcho syndicalist union uh, in catalonia and um talking about organizing an event which uh, explains to people things about pensions and other rights that they have and what they should do. And I thought maybe that's something that we could tie in with this project at some stage in the future. But that's all up in the air. But I think these kind of events are needed as well as, as having blog posts and videos and, and, and these things.
3: Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, that, um, with with Heiko a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about because he's going to give Chadlas like public charlas about the new convenio, uh, mm-hmm. end of November, beginning of December. And we were saying the problem with this these things is that like he had a public charla to explain the convenio before um, the members could vote on it. And I went to it and there were four people. Yeah. Whilst it's not like it's a, oh, it's a campaign to unionize everybody. But this this thing on, you know, SLBCCO and BTTA, the idea is that in reality, like nobody knows that there's a union the moment they do and they see that, you know, the information is good. Hopefully they will then join the union, which will give them more collective bargaining power next time that the convenio is,
0: is renegotiated. I think that's a very good point because I think there's a, I mean, let's just, clarify that the convenio is for the unregulated education sector in Catalonia, not just for English language teaching. Um, mm-hmm. So that includes uh, teachers of other languages as well or anyone else working in, a, in, a, in the kind of private sector education and okay. um, what you're saying is that the, the, the membership of the unions in general is low when it comes to negotiating a new convenio, the lower the membership, the, the less of a base they have to push for real change. And if we complain about the convenio, which no doubt we will do because it's not perfect, we have to add the fact that if people don't join the union, then they can't push for, for more radical changes. So it's a vicious circle.
3: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm going to say something controversial that I might um, regret later on, but I feel like <laughs> I feel like everyone who's ever said or thought uh, you know, oh, this salary is too low. Uh, even looking at a job that, you know, they're not interested in. If, if you see a job ad uh, on the internet or on Facebook and you look at it and you think, wow, that's too low. I kind of feel like then you should go online and spend two minutes to sign up for the union and spend nine euros a month. Right. Uh, and I feel like if, if half of the people who think or say that did that, we would be in such a better position. Right. Collectively.
0: And we have some excellent examples to follow and we'll be doing another episode looking at the process of unionization in Ireland and in the Irish ELT sector. Um, Although it's obviously a very different context from what we have in Spain, I think we can definitely learn lessons from from what's happened in Ireland and, and look at some of the successes that they've had
3: absolutely i mean this is a movement that's you know taking place in many parts of the world at the moment there is a lot of focus and a lot of attention uh on workers rights and i think that this is the time for barcelona as well
0: mm-hmm. yep so shall we sing the song you can't get me i'm part of the union <laughs> 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 maybe not well, <laughs> we'll
1: save that for the outtakes yeah well, yeah I'll, I'll be...
0: <laughs> we'll put, I'll put a link to that in the show notes well <laughs> Um, thank you both very much for participating thank and you, uh, obviously we hope you'll join us again for future episodes when we talk about this and other issues too.
1: Thanks Neil, thanks for organising this.
0: Not at all, thank you.
2: Now I'm a union man, amazed at what I am. I say what I think that the company stinks, yes I'm a union man. In the local hall, I'll be voting with them all With a hell of a shout, it's out, Uh, uh, out, uh, and the rise of the factories fall I always read between